Well, here we are again, continuing in our series of messages from the Gospel according to John. And I've told you that one of the dominant themes we find throughout this Gospel is this idea of the importance of bearing witness to who Jesus is. And bearing witness is the central task of the church. That is what we are all about. That is our purpose uh, and uh, commissioning by Christ, that we bear witness to him to the whole earth. And uh, here's the question we might have, those of us who have come to faith in Christ, what exactly does Christ want of us? What, what, is, what does it entail to bear witness to him? How should we do that? Is there a specific method? And I know over the time there have been a lot of attempts to try to equip Christians so that they know the basics of their faith and are able to communicate them in a coherent manner uh, quickly, although sometimes that results in a very kind of stilted and stiff approach to sharing who Christ is with other people. How how can we figure out uh, what we should be up to when we talk about bearing witness? And what is Jesus doing the whole time? When we're bearing witness to him, what what is his involvement in the whole process? I think we're going to find some helpful pointers in what John has to tell us in the passage we're looking at today of the calling of Jesus' first disciples. So we are continuing in this message, uh, this series of messages in the book of John that I have titled, The Message Became Flesh. And I have titled today's message, Behold Jesus. We're in John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. So let's read verses 35 through 39. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and gazing upon Jesus walking by, he says, Look, the Lamb of God. And his two disciples heard what he said, and they followed Jesus. But Jesus, turning and seeing them following him, tells them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say in translation, Teacher, where are you staying? He tells them, come and you will see. So they come and see where he is staying and they stay with him that day. It was about the 10th hour. So we, we see very quickly here this uh, example of bearing witness. We've seen from last week's passage and this week's passage how John bore witness about Christ. And what did John tell people about Christ? Well, God had revealed to John who Jesus was, that he was the Messiah, and that uh, he would be uh, working in the power of the Holy Spirit uh, to accomplish what the whole Old Testament law with its sacrifices was symbolizing and representing and pointing forward to. Uh, All the lambs and, and animals that had been sacrificed because of human sin throughout the Old Testament period pointed forward to the only true sufficient sacrifice for sin. And, and we see again in the passage we begin looking at today that John repeats that. And this is kind of the handing of the baton between uh, John and his disciples and Jesus and his disciples. And here's very clearly what John said about himself. His point was not to uh, create a great following for himself. His only purpose was to draw people to Jesus, to draw Israel to her Messiah. And uh, he was more than happy for his disciples to leave him behind and move on to Jesus. 
I think there's a reminder there for those of us who are involved in Christian ministry that we can never make ministry about ourselves. That our only task, our only purpose is to bring people to Jesus, not to gather them around ourselves. And in Christian ministry, we need to adopt the example of John the Baptist and get off of the ego trips of building a name for ourselves and a brand for our own version of the gospel and letting everything we're doing be about drawing people to Christ. That's how John did it. And he told people something about Jesus. Look, the Lamb of God. Now, to Jews disciples of John the Baptist who were very familiar with the Old Testament law, that became kind of shorthand uh, for something. uh, Possibly somebody without that background would have no idea what John the Baptist was trying to say about Jesus. But for his disciples, that meant this is God's perfect sacrifice to deal with the issue of sin. And the whole sacrificial system represented a whole uh, nuanced Uh, description of our relationship with God. There were sacrifices that were about establishing community and fellowship with God. There were sacrifices that were about recognizing guilt and making right what sin has made wrong. There were sacrifices that were about God looking over our sin and cleansing uh, the issue. Jesus is all of that wrapped up into one singular person. He is, and uh, to translate into one word what John is saying, there is the Savior. There is the one who will pay and deal definitively with sin. And he said in the verses leading up to this, we saw last week, that he is the lamb who takes up the sin of the world, who takes away the sin of the world. John pointed people to Jesus by saying, this is the one who will save you. I think part of what we need to recognize as we're trying to share about Jesus with people is we need to make them aware that Jesus is the answer that they have been looking for. Whether they know it or not, whether they're aware of the extent of their problem and what it is that is this gaping hole in their souls that cries out for resolution of some sort, how how aware or not they might be of it, we need to tell people, look, there is the Lamb of God. Here is the one come to fix what is broken and to make right what is wrong. So, Two disciples of John's hear him say this, and they immediately follow after Jesus. And again, John is pointing people away from himself and to Jesus. They go after Jesus, and Jesus himself uh, encounters them. He turns around and asks them, what are you seeking? I think that's a, a, a wonderful question to ask anybody who has interest in Jesus. What are you after? What are you looking for? And there are certain things people come near to Jesus looking for that they're not going to find. Uh, If you're looking for Jesus to be uh, your personal genie in a bottle, that's not going to happen. What exactly are you looking for? Are you really looking for me to resolve the core issues in your soul, in the reality of who you are, at the core of who you are, or are you looking for something else? 
and their response indicates something of what they're looking for. Rabbi, they begin by addressing him, and John translates it for us. Rabbi is uh, Hebrew or Aramaic for teacher. Uh, where are you staying? So uh, already, because of what John has told them, they know that Jesus is somebody they want to learn from. Jesus is somebody they want to receive guidance and instruction from. And the practice at this time was for a rabbi to have a group of following disciples who were training under him and learning from him. That's what these disciples had been doing with John the Baptist. And now they turn to Jesus to seek him to be, for him to be their teacher and guide. And they kind of uh, have the audacity to invite themselves into his inner circle. Where are you staying? Will you let us in? Will you let us draw close? And Jesus' response is, of course, come on. Come and you will see. And I love this about following Jesus. Jesus invites us to follow with him. He doesn't just stay where we are. He says, come, and to come to Jesus is to embark on a journey where he's drawing us into himself. Come and you will see. So they come, and they see where he's staying, and they share the day with him. Now, it was about the 10th hour. So in the Jewish reckoning of time, they started counting at about 6 a.m. sunup, and just counted forward the hours of the day. So that would put us at about 4 p.m. Uh, when this happened. And they spent the rest of that evening uh, with Jesus, apparently. I have a question from these verses. John the Baptist told his disciples who Jesus is and what he came to do. Save us from our sins. How should we tell the people in our lives who Jesus is and what he came to do? Let's keep reading, verses 40 through 42. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard from John and followed after him. This one first finds his own brother Simon and says to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Gazing upon him, Jesus said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which means Peter. We have more accounts of people bearing witness of Christ. And we begin to see the chain reactions here, right? John the Baptist points the people he knows to Jesus. They come to Jesus. And the next thing you know, they themselves become people who are bearing witness to Christ. They themselves go out and find other people. And uh, in this story here, John, the uh, gospel writer, only identifies one of those two disciples of John the Baptist by name. It's Andrew. The other one, he doesn't say who, what his name was. Some people suggest that perhaps uh, that is John himself, John the apostle. And uh, we know in his gospel, uh, he's very humble. He doesn't want to make it about himself. So he never even mentions himself by name in the gospel. So it is possible that it would have been John and Andrew were maybe perhaps those two. But for sure we know... Andrew was one of the two. And notice how John, the gospel writer, is telling us here uh, who Andrew is. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, he hasn't even told us who Simon is and why we would call him Simon Peter. He's about to explain some of that. But clearly, 
As John writes this gospel, and, and most people believe that the gospel of John was probably the last of the gospels to be written, uh, as he writes it, he's assuming that his readers are familiar with the other three gospels. They know the stories. They know this great figure in the leadership of the early church, uh, Peter. Uh, they're familiar with who he is, and he very quickly connects the dots for them. Andrew, this is Andrew, the brother of Peter, the guy you all know who he is. Um, so he's one of the two who heard John and followed after Jesus. So he goes and finds his own brother, Simon, and says to him, and perhaps this is the most natural first uh, step in bearing witness, is the, the first place we turn to when we come to Christ is the people we know best the people we love, the people near and dear to us because we're so excited about what we have found that we want the people we love the most to find it as well and to enjoy it as well. We can't help ourselves. And uh, people who first come to Christ are very quick to share Jesus with the people immediately surrounding them. Of course, that's not the end of it. Uh, it, it needs to go from there to the ends of the earth, but that is the most natural starting point for our witness. He finds his brother and tells him this about him. We have found the Messiah. And again, there's a translation note, which is translated Christ. And that indicates, you'll notice throughout this passage, there are multiple times where John, as he's writing the gospel, will, will put a little parenthetical translation note. Um, which indicates that he is writing this gospel knowing that the people he expects to be reading the gospel are people who are not familiar with Hebrew or Aramaic, people who are not familiar with how things worked in uh, the territories of Judea and Galilee in the first century. So probably this is being written and distributed uh, somewhere around Ephesus, Asia Minor, that area of the world is the most likely uh, beginning place for this gospel. So he's constantly uh, adding these notes of translation and explaining things about Jewish customs for readers that aren't familiar with it. And that's helpful for us because <laughs> we also are uh, relatively unfamiliar and disconnected from first century Judaism in the territory of Judea and Galilee. This helps us understand what's going on a little bit better. We have found the Messiah. We have found the Christ. That is what Andrew tells his brother. Uh, that we have found the promised king that the scriptures have, have said was coming. And this is the king who is supposed to uh, establish the eternal kingdom of God and make all things right, bring creation itself to peace and to bring about a ceasing of wars and hostility and all of the toxic and negative and horrible things that we find in all of creation. This is the king who will reign forever in righteousness, who will make right all that has been made wrong by sin in the world. This is the figure Andrew tells his brother he's found. I have found, we have found the Messiah, the king, who is going to make all things right. And he did one more thing. He brought him to Jesus. So bearing witness isn't just telling people about Jesus. It's bringing them alongside to encounter Jesus with us. 
Now, obviously, physically, Andrew could physically take his brother and lead him physically to Jesus where he could talk to him face to face. Obviously, Jesus is present in the life of the church in spirit. Uh, There's no physical Jesus here we can bring somebody to to introduce him, but we can encourage people to approach Jesus. We can give them the Bible. We can give them a gospel of John. And, or we can invite them into our circle. Come, s- share some worship time with us and find out about this Jesus we're encountering in worship. Come, sit around a, a table with us and let's talk about the Bible and find out what it reveals to us about this Jesus I'm talking to you about. But come, Come with me and get to know who this Jesus is. It's perfectly uh, legitimate and encouraged to bring people closer to Jesus when we're bearing witness to him. And he did. He came up to Jesus and Jesus gazed upon him. And uh, there was something significant. He didn't just glance at Peter. He He looked intently at Peter, and this is the first thing he had to say to him. First of all, he knew who he was. Simon, you're John's boy. Uh, You're going to be known by a different name. You're going to be known as Cephas. Now, John is the only gospel writer who addresses Peter as Cephas. That's the Aramaic version of the Greek name Peter. Um, And... uh, the other person who, who uses that to refer to, to Simon Peter is uh, Paul, Paul the Apostle in his letters. When he mentions him, he calls him Cephas. Uh, but that's the Aramaic. And of course, uh, throughout most of the spreading of the church, it was among Gentile churches and Greek was the language. So it's normal that Peter becomes the, the way most people refer to him. And uh, John even introduces the, the Greek translation, Peter. And that name means stone. Uh, so in Aramaic or, or in Greek, uh, Jesus, the first thing he does with Peter is give him a new name. That's interesting. So I've talked about what's going on when we're bearing witness and what's Jesus up to in the process. So as we bring people to Jesus, he is also... Uh, working uh, on his end. We are introducing people to Jesus, but it is Jesus who is encountering the people we are witnessing to. We can't fill in that part. In fact, we're, we're just making introductions. We can't change anything in the life of anybody. Jesus is the one who makes himself known and who draws people to himself. And uh, we find in Peter's case that he makes very clear one thing. Uh, he intends to redefine Peter's whole life. Jesus gives Peter a new identity. And it's strange as we look at how the story plays out, it may seem that Jesus uh, didn't pick a very great name for this man. He calls him stone, this idea of something firm and stable and dependable. And yet in Jesus' most desperate moment when he is being arrested and falsely accused in the dark of the night by evil men, Peter uh, denies three times he has anything to do with Jesus just to save his own skin. He was no stone. He was weak and cowardly. And yet, despite that tremendous moment of failure in his life, 
Jesus will restore him. And Peter will become a key leader in the life of the church. He will, as Jesus asked him to do, take care of Jesus' lambs, of his sheep, of the flock of God. He will uh, provide a leadership role in the early church that is vitally important. He will be the one God uses to break open the Jerusalem church and convince all the believers in Jerusalem that they are required to open their doors to uncircumcised Gentiles who come to faith in Jesus. Peter becomes the leader God uses to uh, break through that barrier, uh, that prejudice in the Jerusalem church. And there will will come a time when Peter will will give up his life rather than deny Christ. And his death, his martyrdom will become a challenge to believers for centuries to come. So Jesus is right. This is who uh, Simon is going to become. This is what Jesus is going to do with Simon. Now in the Bible we find uh, multiple occasions in which people change other people's names. This is something God does. God takes Abram and changes his name to Abraham. He takes Sarai, his wife, and changes her name to Sarah. He takes Jacob and changes his name to Israel. We find also in the Old Testament the example sometimes foreign kings would invade and take over Jerusalem. They would depose the king and pick another person in the royal family, make that person king and change that person's name. We find that happens multiple times in the history of of Judah. And uh, that was one way a king demonstrated that he had complete authority and control over this other person to the point that he had the right to redefine who he is. Well, Jesus, in doing this with Peter, is confirming his identity as Messiah. He's confirming his identity as the promised King of kings and Lord of lords. And he alone, being God Almighty, has the right to redefine who you are. He is the king who has the right to tell you this is who you are now. Jesus changes us. And it's, it's a change for the better. He rescues us from the power of sin and death and defines for us a new identity. I have a question from these verses. Jesus changed Peter's name. How has Jesus redefined who you are? Let's read 43 through 46. On the next day, Jesus wanted to go into Galilee, and he finds Philip, and he says to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, and Andrew, uh, from Andrew and Peter's city. Philip finds Nathanael and says to him, we have found him of whom wrote Moses in the law, and also the prophets, Jesus, son of Joseph, the one from Nazareth. And Nathanael says to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip tells him, come and see. There's some interesting things that go on with Philip. First of all, we find that Philip is somebody Jesus finds himself. Nobody else goes and finds him. Nobody else tells him about Jesus or brings him to Jesus. 
This Philip is going about his life when Jesus crosses his path and Jesus says to him, follow me. Now, I do think this indicates this is really the way Jesus draws all of us to him. We are all asked to follow him. Coming to Jesus is not just about admitting who he is. It's about committing to a life of discipleship. It is about accepting him as our rabbi, master, teacher, leader, and allowing him to guide us through life. So in this case, Jesus finds Philip and says, follow me. And I think there's something important to recognize here. The the task of the church is to bear witness of Christ to the whole world. That is our job. But that doesn't mean that that is the only thing God is up to in the world. We do not limit what God is doing by our activity. God is not confined to the scope of what we can accomplish for him. God draws people to himself quite apart from our activity sometimes. Sometimes people are just walking down the street and somehow something odd happens and they sense that they need to walk into that particular building and sit down in that particular service and hear the gospel for the first time. Nobody shared Jesus with that person and yet there they are. Jesus calls people to himself and doesn't always need for us to be the intermediaries uh, initiating that invitation to follow him. Uh, Obviously, this doesn't mean that we do not bear the full responsibility of the Great Commission. God expects us to be obedient, and he longs for us to be his preferred way through which people are drawn to himself. But uh, he's not limited to us. Jesus is is actually eager to draw people to himself and it's not our task to convince God to receive people. He is more eager than you or I will ever be for the lost to come to him and be saved. We merely uh, carry out the introductions. Jesus is the one who is so eager to rescue and save that he came to this earth and gave his life to rescue those people, to rescue us. Uh, Philip was from Bethsaida, from Andrew and Peter's city. Now in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, we're told that they were from uh, Capernaum. Uh, probably these, were, these towns were nearby. Probably it might be that they were born in Bethsaida and eventually moved to Capernaum and resettled there, much the same way that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, spent his earliest childhood in Egypt, and ended up in Nazareth. And everybody talks about Jesus as being from Nazareth. Uh, so I, I think that's uh, simply that, that their uh, town of origin uh, was Bethsaida and so was Philip's, even though they later end up in Capernaum. So Philip, Jesus calls him to himself. He finds Jesus and discovers who he is. And again, we see the pattern repeating. He immediately goes and finds somebody that he's close to, Nathaniel. Runs over and tells him. Uh, It's interesting how he puts it. We have found him of whom wrote Moses in the law and also the prophets. Jesus, son of Joseph the one from Nazareth. So uh, 
he, he lets him know that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of Scripture. This is the one the whole Bible is talking about. Not just the law of Moses points forward to God doing something amazing in the future, but since Moses wrote, every other prophet who wrote anything in the Scripture after him points in the same direction to this one person, Jesus. He is the coming to fruition of the whole Bible. It's all about him. We have found the one the whole Bible is about. And he tells him his name, Jesus. He's the son of Joseph. He comes from Nazareth. In all of that, apparently Nathanael uh, zeroed in on one detail. And of all the people we've witnessed so far in these uh, verses, uh, Nathanael is the most skeptical of all of them. He focuses on the fact that he's from Nazareth. So he says this, and perhaps reflecting uh, typical uh, rivalry between neighboring towns, uh, he says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Uh, You can see that he doesn't have a hugely high opinion of Nazareth because he suggests that there's not a single good thing that could ever come out of Nazareth. Or perhaps he's, he's... talking about scripture and suggesting that there's nothing in scripture that tells us anything about somebody coming from Nazareth are you sure you got this right Philip in fact if we look through our whole Old Testament you'll find that Nazareth is not even mentioned in the Old Testament maybe that's what he's talking about either way he doesn't seem convinced that Jesus is who who Philip is telling him he is I love Philip's answer He doesn't break out his apologetics 101. He doesn't rally his arguments and think, okay, how do I convince him? He just says, you know what? Come and see. See for yourself. Sometimes I think we as Christians fight so hard to convince people of who Jesus is that uh, we almost accomplish the opposite. We almost come off as people who are desperate because they're trying to convince the people listening to them of something they themselves are not quite convinced about. You don't need to overdo it, and you're never going to argue anybody into faith in Jesus. So when people are skeptical, when people say, ah, I don't think so, I think, I think you've got it all wrong, The easiest response is, well, why don't you check him out yourself? Don't take my word for it. Come and see. Draw near. Figure out who he is yourself. Look into it. I can help you. I can share what I've found. And I think uh, Philip uh, models for us a much more winsome approach and one that actually relies on Jesus to reveal himself rather than putting on us the the responsibility in this that really doesn't fall to us. It's not our job to uh, cause faith to awaken in in a heart. Only Jesus can do that. But we can certainly uh, make the introductions happen. I have a question from these verses. When Nathanael responded to Philip's witness regarding Jesus with skepticism, he simply invited him to come and see. 
How can we invite skeptical people to draw near to Jesus themselves and see him? And let's finish reading verses 47 through 51. Jesus sees Nathanael coming toward him and he says about him, Look, truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael says to him, How do you know me? Jesus replied and said to him, Before Philip called you, while you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, You are God's son. You are Israel's king. Jesus replied and said to him, Because I told you that I saw you beneath the fig tree, you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he tells him, Truly, truly, I say to you all, you will see heaven opened and God's angels ascending and descending on the sun. Of man. So Philip does this. Come and see. So he brings Nathanael to meet Jesus. And as he's approaching, Jesus looks at him and has something to say about him. He calls on those around Look, this guy's the real deal. He is truly an Israelite. There is no deceit in him. There's a bit of a wordplay there because Jacob's name implied that he was a bit of a trickster, a deceiver. And of course, God changed his name to Israel. And uh, in that sense, he is nothing like Jacob the deceiver. He is like the Israel that God made him. Um, But again, also Jesus, as we go through this gospel, it becomes obvious that Jesus doesn't assume that just because you are a descendant of Israel, you are part of God's Israel. In fact, in chapter 8, he's going to say that even people who are descendants genealogically of Abraham might in truth be not sons of Abraham, but sons of the devil. It is very possible to be physically an Israelite, and to, in terms of God, be no Israelite at all. So he says, this guy's the real deal. He's not just somebody pretending to be a a participant in the people of God. This guy's really in it. He's not just going to church uh, or to synagogue because he's just going with the flow and everybody else is doing it and that's just the thing to do on Saturday. This guy is genuinely pursuing God, and he's not putting up a show to impress anybody. He is not succumbing to social pressures. He is the real thing. He is the genuine item, a man who is honestly seeking for God. So Nathaniel's a bit taken back by that. And he asks Jesus, how do you know me? We've never even met. You grew up in this town I'd never set foot in. Uh, How how do you know who I am? It's not like I'm the hot ticket, you know. There's all this buzz about Nathaniel everywhere. It's not like somebody's published memoirs on me and you know all about me. Nobody knows who I am. How do you know who I am? And Jesus says, before Philip called you. So apparently this is something Philip doesn't even know. Before you ran into Philip, uh, you were there under the fig tree. That's where I saw you. That's an odd thing 
to say. Um, why was he sitting under a fig tree? I wish, I wish John had seen fit to explain the details that clearly are missing in this story. I don't know what was going on under that fig tree, um, but there must have been something happening there that made that a significant moment in Nathaniel's memory. Because immediately after hearing that, he has three things to say about Jesus. He says, Rabbi, you are God's son. You are Israel's king. I can't help but wonder if Nathaniel, under that fig tree, was not in prayer and was conversing with God about the Messiah and about knowing God himself. I don't know. But somehow he connects the fact that Jesus saw him under the fig tree with these realities about who Jesus is. Somehow the two are connected. And Jesus and Nathaniel know that. And perhaps that's why John wrote this this way. But to everybody else watching this, it was a baffling mystery. What is going on between Nathaniel and Jesus? What does Nathaniel recognize about Jesus? First of all, Rabbi. He is now claiming Jesus as his teacher. And he is recognizing that not only does Jesus have the right to instruct him, but in this calling him Rabbi, he is committing himself and indicating his desire to learn at the feet of Jesus. This is his teacher from, how, from now moving forward, if he will have him. He also says, you are God's son. You are not just a man. You are divine. You are God, uh, the son. Come to us in the flesh. I don't see any way Nathaniel could have known that apart from supernatural revelation by the Spirit of God. But we begin to see this through the Gospel of John. People who uh, make this leap because God's Spirit is bearing witness in their soul. This is not just a man. This is God's very Son. And he identifies him as Israel's King. He is the promised Messiah. He is King of kings, Lord of lords. He is the one who will become the instrument by which creation itself is rescued from sin and death and everything that is broken is made right. And he is the one to establish the eternal kingdom of God and reign in righteousness forever and ever and every kingdom and every power will bow to him. This is who Jesus is. Nathaniel has a full scope view by the working of the Holy Spirit of who it is that Jesus is. We need to understand as we come to Jesus that this is the grand cosmic scope of who it is we're drawing near to. And I think it's helpful as we tell people about Jesus, if we indicate to them, expect your socks to be blown off. Expect your life to never be the same because that's the kind of person we're talking about when we talk about Jesus. I think Jesus was slightly amused at the 
dramatic turnaround in Nathaniel from saying, I doubt anything good could come out of Nazareth to calling him rabbi and God and Messiah. Uh, Jesus says, uh, you're believing because I saw you under the fig tree? Well, if you think that's impressive, wait for what's coming. I love that about Jesus, that he tells us that uh, he is up to amazing, grand, spectacular things. And as we walk with him, there is this sense of expectation for what is to come. There's more. And even though what we have found thus far is incredible, amazing, the best we have encountered in life, there is still more to come. That's just who Jesus is. And he also says to him something that he, he now switches to the second plural, second person plural, so he's including everyone around, not just Nathaniel. I'm saying to you all in the Greek that you is plural. I'm saying to y'all or you guys or however you want to word that. You are going to see heaven opened and God's angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. There are two Old Testament references Jesus is making in that statement. Um, one of them is Son of Man. And that uh, ties into a prophecy we find in Daniel chapter 7 where we have this vision of God Almighty, the Ancient of Days, sitting on his throne. And with the clouds of heaven approaches a one like a son of man. And to that one, the Ancient of Days gives a kingdom that he shall be over all kingdoms and all nations and all, be given all authority and that he will reign eternally, everlastingly. So he is claiming for himself this title, Son of Man. And in that title, that messianic title, even though he is being given divine attributes, eternal existence and omnipotence, the title Son of Man indicates that God is going to come to us in the incarnation, that he will come as a human being among us. The Messiah will be God in the flesh. Jesus is alluding to that passage. But what exactly is this promised king who's going to be given by the ancient of days all dominion and authority to reign eternally? What is he going to do? He says uh, he's going to become a connection between heaven and earth. You're going to see heaven open wide. And you're going to see God's angels going up and coming down. So he's going to function as a ladder the other passage Jesus is alluding to here is in Genesis. When Jacob was running away from his brother Esau because he wanted to kill him, he spent the night in the middle of the field there near Bethel, or I at that point it was called, and uh, he spent the night and laid his head on a rock and slept, and he had a vision, he had a dream that night. And he saw heaven opened up, and up, up there was God Almighty. And there was a ladder connecting where God was to earth, and God's angels were con continually rising, going up and coming down. There was a constant flow from God, to God and from God. 
And what God revealed to Jacob in that moment is that he is intimately involved in everything that's happening on earth. Jesus appropriates that image and says, I'm going to become the true ladder, the true connection between God Almighty and this creation. And the messengers, the angels of God will be rising and coming down and rising up and descending continually because this is going to establish an ongoing flow of connection between God and his creation. That is not going to be interrupted because this son of man is established eternally. Rather than hit or miss points of connection, Jesus is saying, I am building a highway that is going to stay connected and there's no tearing it down. I am connecting God and creation. I am undoing the separation that sin had introduced. I have a question from these final verses. What seemed to convince Nathanael was the fact that Jesus knew exactly who he was. Why is the fact that Jesus knows us vital to our own faith? We've reached the end of today's passage and we find out a lot about Jesus in these initial encounters with Jesus. We uh, find out that he's God's lamb, that he is the perfect sacrifice to deal definitively with the problem of sin. Anything that is wrong in creation, he came to address. We find that he comes to be rabbi, that he wants to apprentice us to him and to guide us and make us part of his inner circle and share life with us and guide us in life and instruct us so that we may grow and learn under his tutelage. We find uh, that he is the culmination of 1,500 years of God revealing himself in sacred scriptures. He is the answer to all of the promises and all of the cry of the Old Testament for God to do something about the problem of sin. He is the answer to the yearning in our own souls. We find that he is that Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, come to establish the eternal kingdom of God. We find that he is sovereign and that when he calls us to him, it is so that he may transform us and redefine us so that we are no longer defined by the shame that dominates us now, but we are defined by the glory that has claimed us and we have a new identity in him. We find that Jesus is the God who knows us in ways nobody knows us and calls us to know him in turn. The God who knows us wants to be known by us. When we bear witness, this is what we're telling people about. We're telling people, this is who Jesus is. This is what he's up to in my life. And I would love nothing more than for you to find in him what I have found in him. I'm not after your money. I'm not after your adulation. I'm not after your admiration. I just want you to know how awesome Jesus is. We bear witness to this glorious Savior and Lord.
Let me say a word of prayer. Jesus, thank you for coming to us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for making right all that was wrong and for giving us an invitation to participate in this path from the mess of sin and death into the glory of your Son. Lord, help us to surrender fully to you as rabbi, as teacher, as promised one, as Messiah, as King. And Lord, help us as we tell others about you. We, we can't do justice to the magnitude, the, the glory of who you are. Give us the right words. And where our words fail, Holy Spirit, just step in and fill in the gaps. But draw people to yourself and help us to bear faithful and true witness to you, to those around us. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.